All right, you can turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to wrap up this little book this morning. Cool. Second Peter ch chapter 3 and verse 1 says this. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of a reminder. Now that sounds kind of familiar to what we heard Peter say in chapter 1. He said, I'm writing to stir up your minds, to bring to remembrance that which you have already been taught. So you can have a sincere mind and a bad memory. Isn't that true? You know, they, they say the advantage of a bad memory is that you can enjoy several times something good for the first time. <laughs> it's easy for Christians to get accustomed to truth. Remember in the book of Acts, you know, Eutychus, that story of him sitting in the windowsill as the Apostle Paul went on and on and taught on and on and preached on and on and he fell from the window uh, in his sleep and died before the Lord raised him. And, uh, you know, I mean, primarily that story is about the fact that God can raise the dead, and, and it happened because, you know, Paul was going on and on in his preaching. But, you know, there's this interesting picture there, too, where we can go to sleep in regards to the Word of God and the things that are being proclaimed to us. And the church needs to be woken up from her slumber. We need to take the message of God's Word seriously. And reminders, when we are given reminders from the scripture, they are meant so that we would, again, our whole selves, our whole person, be gripped and possessed by the power of the gospel and its truth, so that we would be energized by the truths of the gospel, so that we might live as God's people for the glory of God. And so, Peter says, I'm just going to remind you, we're going to do it again. He says in verse 2, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the command of the, of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So we know this. God's word is true. And we need to pay attention to the truths that God's word uh, teaches. You know, each of us, I, I would encourage you, if you don't have one, you, you need to seek and grow and develop a daily quiet time where you have personal time set aside with the Lord to just systematically go through the scripture. You know, pick a Bible, a, a book of the Bible and just work your way through it. We need to be grounded in the word. You know, I think of new Christians. Obviously, new Christians need to be grounded in the doctrines of the faith. Grounded in the word of God. But for those of us that have been around for a little while, for those of you that have warmed the pews for a long time, uh, we need to be reminded of the importance of the things that we have already learned. And in particular, uh, we're going to see that Peter's going to stick on this, this point, that, that we need to understand and be reminded of the teachings and the prophecies regarding the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. The predictions of the holy prophets and the commands of the Lord that were taught by the apostles. See, the return of Jesus Christ was prophesied by the prophets, and it was uh, taught by the disciples, and it's, it's not something that's a roll of a dice. The purpose of, of prophetic truth is not so that we could speculate about the future. The purpose of prophetic truth is always so that we would be motivated to live for God in the here and now, to live uh, as today is the day of salvation. 
And so when it comes to the return of Jesus Christ, we're not talking about a theory. We're not talking about some game of roulette or game of chance. It's, it's not some, you know, risky ideology or belief. The return of the Lord Jesus Christ is prophesied by the scriptures, by the prophets of the Old Testament, and it was taught as doctrine by the apostles. Jesus Christ is coming again, and it's a fact. Is everything okay back there? <laughs> okay. Jesus Christ is coming again, and it is a fact. And it's easy for the subject of Christ's return to become for us uh, nothing more than some theological concept or, or some idea or something that we uh, debate over. That we can have fun and speculate with. Bible prophecy. And in the midst of that, when it becomes something that just for us is, is speculation... And, and guessing and something that we have fun of, we lose sight of the reality that the predictions of the prophets, the return of Jesus Christ was prophesied by the prophets. It's, it's doctrine taught by the apostles. And so we're not talking about something that's a, a, just a theological concept that we debate or that we, we kick around different ideas. And uh, that Christians debate about, you know, we... Christians debate and have uh, all sorts of ideas and there are different theological standpoints that the church takes on when the return of Christ will happen. You know, is it before the tribulation? Is it in the middle of the tribulation? Is it after? You know, it's, it's fun to talk about those things, but what we got to remember is that regarding Jesus' return, it was never meant to just become a talking point for the church. It was never meant to be about debate. It was meant to be for us hard motivation to live for Jesus Christ today. Motivation to live for Jesus. Motivation to live like he could come back at any moment. And so it's no wonder that for the purpose of lulling the church to sleep and into slumber, Satan would seek to send his servants to scoff at the second coming as Peter's about to talk about. He says this in verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of the creation. So does not only does the word of God prophesy the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, it also prophesies uh, the coming of those who would scoff at such an idea. The very presence of scoffers, here they come, good stuff, thank you Lord. The very presence of scoffers is, is proof uh, that the word that they deny is true. Now, a scoffer is simply someone who just treats lightly as something that should be taken seriously. You think about the days of Noah and the days in which Noah lived in which he fashioned the ark as God instructed him to do. There were those in his day, in fact, the entire culture and the entire world scoffed at the idea of a coming rain. Uh, you know, I'm sure you've probably run into a scoffer before when you've dealt with conversations about Christianity, about Jesus Christ. Why do they scoff? Well, Peter tells us in verse 3, they scoff because they want to follow their own evil desires. Uh, they, they scoff because if they don't, they have to face the reality of what the Bible teaches. They have to face the reality about what the Bible teaches in regards to sin, Face the reality about what the scripture uh, teaches in regards to the coming of Jesus. They have to mend their ways. And so when your lifestyle 
uh, contradicts what the scripture and what the word of God teaches, you have one of two options. You change your lifestyle, or secondly, you change the word of God. You try to move the word of God. And scoffers choose number two. They don't want to change, so they scoff the idea of judgment. They scoff the idea of eternal separation from God. They scoff the idea of the, the, the second coming. But always know this, at the root of such scoffing, at the root of such skepticism and cynicism, is a desire to just do your own thing. Scoffers are faced with two choices. One is this. You change your lifestyle and follow what the word of God teaches. Or secondly, you change the word of God. And because they don't want to depart from their lusts or from the pursuit of the desires of their flesh, they begin to move and scoff at the word of God. And at the root of skepticism and cynicism is always this desire to just follow one's own flesh and lustful desires. And when it comes to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, what is the argument that they employ to scoff at Jesus coming? Well, well, Peter tells us what it is. They say this, things are going on just as they always have. They look at the world and they say, nothing so history altering has ever happened in the past. And why would it happen now? You know, you Christians have talked about the coming of Jesus Christ for 2,000 years. So where is he? You ever got that one? We all have. Where is he? And they choose to uh, rule out God's ability to divinely intervene in history. And therefore, they rule out his ability to, uh, in the future, divinely intervene. But the problem with their argument is this. That they're not considering the right view of history. That's what Peter says. And so he points us to a couple things that will help us have the right view of history. And he says this. Verse 5. For they deliberately overlook this fact. That the heavens existed long ago and that the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. So Peter points us to two truths that the scoffers deliberately ignore. Historical events to prove that Christ will come again. The first one is the work of God at creation. And the second is the flood in Noah's day. Now Genesis 1, in regards to the work of God at creation, Genesis 1 tells us that the heavens and the earth were created by God. Nine times in Genesis 1, it says, and God said, let there be. Nine times in Genesis 1, and God said. Psalm 33 verse 9 says this, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. And it's a kind of a cool picture here in Peter. And interesting, when you just think about creation and, and some of just trying to figure out the geology of the earth and the different things, Peter says this, that God used water as an instrument to form the earth. Above and below, God used water in the forming of the world. And really, you know, the point that Peter is making, it, it's, it's, not tried, it's not hard to figure out. God created the world merely by his word, and he can also intervene in this world whenever he wants. And he can certainly, you know, do what he told us he will do. And so as Peter points to creation and the fact that it was God who created the heavens and the earth, the, the point is this, God can intervene in history with just his word anytime he wants. 
But the second historical event that Peter points to is the flood in Noah's day. Uh, you remember when we were back in chapter 2 a couple weeks ago that Peter already used the flood for us in a, as an example, uh, as a, a pattern that divine judgment will again come on the face of, of the earth. The flood was this worldwide cataclysmic event. You know, I couldn't help think of that song. The Lord told Noah to build him an arky arky. Build it out of gopher barky barky. Um, but you know, as Noah built that ark, over the days and the months and the years that he worked obediently to God's instruction, people gathered around him and they scoffed. It had never rained before. You have to keep that in mind as you think of the story of Noah. Yeah, right, Noah. God's going to send water from the heavens. The whole earth is going to be deluged. Ooh. Come on, you know, you can, you can just imagine them scoffing them. Nothing like that had ever happened. Rain? No one knew what rain was. Now, I know that's hard to believe for us on the Sunshine Coast. But it had never rained. The, the Bible tells us that the Lord watered the earth from springs and the water would come up out of the ground. You know what's thinking? You know what they call uh, two good days of rain on the Sunshine Coast? A weekend. No, it's not that bad. It just rains like twice a year, August to April, May to July, right? No. In Noah's day, it had never rained. And so when, when he warned of coming judgment and a coming rain, the people scoffed at him and they said to him, everything goes on from the beginning, Noah. Everything goes on from the beginning. That can't happen. And you know what happened? God literally changed the atmosphere and rain came. There's all sorts of theories about where the rain came from. And it's pretty awesome to just look, look it up. You know, some say that there was a layer of water that encircled the earth and God just let it go and it came down on the face of the earth. Listen, the point is this. God can do whatever the heck he wants. <laughs> he can do it. If he wants to change the atmosphere and send rain from heaven, then he'll do it. And if he says he's going to dissolve the earth and it's going to be purged with fire, then he'll do it. See, Psalm 115 verse 3 says this, Our God is in the heavens and he will do what he pleases. And so, so to suggest that all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation is actually a mistake. They're not continuing in the same pattern. Because God does it. And he has intervened in history. And the rules of naturalism, the rules of nature do not apply to him. He can work outside of nature. He is supernatural. Verse 7 says, By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Okay, so just as the world was destroyed in the days of Noah, Peter says, so God is going to destroy it again. And the next time he won't use water because God made a promise to Noah that he would never flood the earth again. And when he made that covenant, he put a sign in the sky to seal that covenant forever. We see it often on the Sunshine Coast. A rainbow. You know, remember that. Every time you see that rainbow, you, you remind yourself. It's, it's a symbol that's being hijacked, but it's actually a symbol that's a, of, of God's covenant with man that he will not judge the world with water ever again. A symbol of that covenant with Noah. And so the next time God brings cataclysmic judgment upon the earth, 
Peter tells us it won't be with water. It will be with fire. And I was thinking about this. There's a lot of fear in the world about nuclear warfare. We think of some of the crisis that's happening in the Middle East. You know, I read, I, I don't know if it's true, but I've, I've read or I've heard before that there's enough atomic energy in a glass of water to run like an uh, a ocean liner. But here's the thing. Contrary to what culture and what we're often hearing is, is that man is not going to destroy the earth. I know it's hard to believe with everything that we hear about the environment and the condition that the earth is in. I, I, I know that it's hard to believe, but God is not going to allow us to destroy the earth. You know, and I'm not, I'm not making any argument that we shouldn't be environmentally responsible or think green or anything like that. You should. You should do all those things. We should be responsible. But our care of the environment is not a religion for us as it is for the world as followers of Jesus Christ. We serve the Lord. And we need to realize that when it's time, it's God who's going to push the button. God will push the button and, and it will be him that burns up the earth and he will usher in a new heavens, new heavens and a new earth. And again, the point is just simply this. God is able to intervene in history whenever he sees fit. He's done it in the past and he'll do it again. The apostles and the Old Testament prophets uh, tell us in many places, you know, you, you, you go to all the prophets of the Old Testament, you read many, many, many times about the fiery judgment that God is going to use to purge the earth. And so I guess the question is, why the delay? Isn't that what we want to know? Isn't that what the scoffer thinks? Oh yeah, if all this is going to happen, why the delay? Well, there's another fact Peter says you shouldn't overlook. It's in verse 8. He says this, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You know, actually, um, the 90th Psalm, it's a great Psalm. It was written by Moses. You don't, necessarily always catch that with your eye when you're going through the Psalms. We just give them all to David. But the 90th one is attributed to Moses. And Moses said in verse 4, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. What was Moses saying and what is Peter saying? That God's eternal nature exceeds all measures of time. You know, think about it. His divine, his divine knowledge of all future things, it's like it's just present for him. He knows it's, it's like he's living in the present always. He does not sense or feel time like we do. So can we accuse God of delay? You know, my, I think about my kids asking me to do stuff. And, and I love my kids, but they tend to forget that parents live with lots of responsibilities and have things that, you know, I wish I could play Lego, like, all the time. So, you know, Dad, can we play? Can we play? Can we do this? Okay. Can we go to the beach? Give me an hour. Give me one hour. Let me take care of this, and then we'll go do something. Oh, an hour! You know, like, it's like the end of the world that you have to wait an hour. You know, as an adult, you know, we, you, we know how quick an hour disappears, right? It's like, man, I should have said two. Uh, we know how fast it goes. But our kids think 
that an hour is like an await, a wait for eternity. And if you're sitting in a BC Ferries lineup, it is kind of like a wait for eternity. Okay? So, so what Peter's talking here about is about the patience of God. He, he exists outside the realm of time in a way that it's hard for us to understand. God has a different view of time. He has, he has a different view of, of patience. And so can we accuse him of being slow? Peter says you can't. You can't actually accuse the Lord of being slow. He's just not working according to your schedule. He's not working according to your concept of time. You know, I don't know what it is about the Lord, but you know, he never seems to work according to my schedule. He never seems to work according to any of our schedules. And so when it comes to time uh, and waiting for the Lord, it's about perspective. And, and Peter is pointing us to just grab hold of God's perspective on time. Count time in the way that God counts time. It, it, with his patience. Not with a clock. With his patience for people. When God counts time, to him it's about salvation, not about a clock. You know, I'm glad God's patient. I'm glad God doesn't live according to my watch. I'm glad Jesus didn't come back five years ago. Some of you weren't even in the kingdom of God five years ago. I, I, I'm glad Jesus didn't come back 10 years ago. I, I'm glad he didn't come back 20 years ago. You know, I want Jesus to come back. I, I look for, we look forward with hope at his coming. But as we look back, in hindsight, we go, God, thank you for your patience. There's still family. There's still friends. There's still communities and countries and nations and people. All, they need Jesus. Thank you, God, for your patience. See, God is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so until the last one comes in, whatever number or wherever they're from, when the last one comes in, then Jesus will come. Peter says it'll be like a thief in the night. Check it out. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. You know, in the time of Jesus, when the teachers of the law and those who proclaimed the scriptures looked at the prophecies about the Messiah, it, it was something that was hard for them to interpret. They thought they had it all figured out. We know that when Jesus came, they, <laughs> the religious missed him. They didn't see it. And what they failed to see in the Old Testament, what we can see with hindsight is this, is that the scripture prophesied the coming of the Messiah and often hand in hand it would prophesy his first coming with his second coming and it was hard to see the line on where the heck it was. We can look back and say, yes, that was in regards to the first coming and this is regard to the second coming. Something similar is going on in this passage because Peter's talking about the days of the Lord and the day of Christ and the day of God. And so I want to just help us for a second, try to distinguish what he is talking about. Is he just talking about the return of Jesus Christ? And I would say no. He's distinguishing different days that are mentioned in the Bible. There is the day of Christ. When the scripture speaks of the day of Christ, it's relating to what we refer to as the rapture. The coming of, for, of Jesus for his church. The second coming. But then look at verse 10. There's a couple words in it. It says, 
but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. That's something altogether different, the day of the Lord. What's, what's he talking about? Well, we, we believe that the day of the Lord, as we read there, it's about when the heavens will pass away and things are destroyed and all that stuff. And, and so it's happening on a different time frame. We might say, you know, I, I kind of pictured it like this way. And here we go. We could just have speculation about Bible end times. But I, I put the day of Christ at the start of the tribulation. I put the day of the Lord somewhere at the back of the tribulation. But there's another day. Check it out. Jump up in your Bibles just for a minute to verse 12. It says this, waiting for the hastening, the coming of the day of God. Now Peter's talking about something else again. Those poor guys. See, we can't rouse them for missing Jesus the first time around. We probably would have missed him as God-fearing people. Maybe, I don't know. I hope not. The day of God is the period when God's people will enjoy the new heavens and the new earth when all has been judged. Okay, it's at the whole end of the whole shebang. So you got, you got the day of Christ, the day of the Lord, the day of God. It's worth circling those things and just watching for them as you read your Bible, especially in, in different books. And so we don't know when the day of the Lord comes, but we do know what will happen when it comes. It, it will be a total transformation of this present world. Is that possible? Could it happen? Remember, that's what the ancient people said to Noah. And God changed the atmosphere. He changed the rules. And Peter is talking about something so devastating, it's, it's beyond our ability to imagine it. But it reminds me of Colossians chapter 1 that tells us that in Jesus Christ, all things were made and in him, all things hold together. Jesus sustains Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, the entire universe by his word. But there will come a day when he lets it go. And, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, Peter says. And so, you know, we talk about a big bang. <laughs> there will be a big bang. He just got it on the wrong end of history, I think. The place is not at the beginning. The big bang is yet to come and the heavens will pass away with a roar and Jesus will dissolve them. Verse 11. Since all things are to be thus dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for the hastening, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God because of the because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. So again, remember, the, the purpose of prophetic truth is not speculation, but motivation. So Peter takes it to us. Well, here's the motivation. Okay, these, not sure about some things, but here's how we should live in the midst of these things. The present world is going to be dissolved. And so we should live our lives first seeking the kingdom of God. Isn't that what Jesus said? Seek ye first the kingdom of God. I'll take care of the rest. Seek first the kingdom of God. Live for that which will remain in eternity. You know, I find that terribly difficult to keep that focus. Don't you? Our materialistic culture, Canada, we got it all, man. We have got it all. There's not very much that I hold back from having when I want something. Especially if it's like Ben and Jerry's ice cream, okay? Billy Fong's, 10 o'clock at night. Whatever. You know, we, we don't hold back much. 
We don't miss out on much. And it's hard to keep this perspective living in a materialistic culture. But we're to be motivated. Our motivation is to, be li to live for the Lord and for the prospect of his, uh, his coming. An expectant attitude which will change the conduct of my life. You know, we would be foolish to invest everything in things we can't keep. We would be wise to invest in things we cannot lose. Things that are eternal. The kingdom of God. And Peter actually says, and he gives us the sense that we can haste the coming of the Lord. We can speed his coming. You know, I think of the disciples. When they asked Jesus to teach him how to pray, what was the first thing that he taught them to pray? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We can speed the coming of the kingdom of God by praying that God's kingdom would come. By praying. We can also haste the coming of the Lord, I would say, by being about the work of evangelism. Sharing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ because God's patience is about salvation. He's worried about people coming into the kingdom. And so if his people will be about the work, we just never know when that last one comes in. We can haste the coming of the Lord. And so two ways we can haste this coming, prayer and evangelism. Really, is that true? Can we really haste a sovereign God and control of the entire world? Well, yes, absolutely we can. The scripture gives us lots of examples where God adjusted his plan based on people's responses. I think of the Israelites standing on the banks of the Jordan, camp set up, ready to rocket into the promised land. And 12 spies came back and they gave a bad report. 10 of them anyways. And, and the people refused to go into the promised land and open door before them. God says, okay, I'll adjust my plan. You die. You generation, you go into the desert and die and I'll lead your children in. God, God responds to people's response. Or think of Nineveh. Jonah went to that city and he preached, repent, 40 days, judgment's coming. You repent. And you know what they did? They, they, they repented. They changed their ways and God adjusted his plans. We can haste his coming by prayer and evangelism. It's interesting. The very elements of this world will be dissolved. They will melt away. Look at verse 13. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Isn't that awesome? God will make a new heaven and a new earth. Isaiah pro prophesied it. Chapter 65. New heavens and a new earth where righteousness will perfectly dwell, where God will be with his people. Verse 14. There, beloved, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And so when we live with this attitude of expectancy towards the future day of the Lord, it, it, it has this purifying effect for the hearts of God's people. Uh, towards one another, in our relationships, we, we don't want spots. We don't want blemishes. 
Uh, towards others, you know, we want to be walking in peace. Towards God, we don't want to have spots and blemishes. In, in our relationship with God, we, we want to walk in peace. There's, there's just this uh, purifying effect as we hopefully look for the coming of the Lord. Verse 15, this is the first part of it. He says, and count the patience of the Lord as salvation. It's easy to get frustrated at times with the Lord, with his timing, uh, with, with God's patience. But in those moments, it's wise to remember God is working out salvation somewhere. He's working it. He's working out patiently salvation for someone else. I'll wait it out. Verse 15 continues. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his other letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So you, it's just kind of cool how uh, Peter references Paul here and says, man, he says it right. He does it good. I support his ministry. And he even admits, yeah, some of the stuff Paul says is tough, which we know. It's tough to interpret some of the things that Paul teaches. And Peter's warning is that those who are untaught, those who are untrained in the scripture can take those tough teachings and twist them for their own purposes. Twisting the scripture. You know, it's very possible to twist the scripture, isn't it? You know, just because someone claims to teach the Bible, just because I claim to teach the Bible, you know what? You need to be a Berean from Acts chapter 17. You take the scriptures yourself and you search them out for yourself and you make sure the things that you hear are true, the things that you are being taught, that they're biblical. Daily search the scripture to find out if the things you know are true. Because there are those who twist. Verse 17 says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. And so since we know this beforehand, we know the day, about the day of the Lord. We're, we're awaiting it with patient expectation. We got to just preserve, persevere. And he says you need to do it. Otherwise, something will happen. You'll lose a sense of stability in the Lord. Second time Peter's brought this up it was in chapter 1, 2 of 2 Peter. Talking about the virtues, he says if you do these things and they're increasing in your life, you'll gain a great standing in the Lord. You have this sense of security in Jesus Christ. This is another area where he says we can lose our sense of stability in God. We're to be planted on a rock, a foundation that's firm. We have an anchor that holds. But when the church begins to let go of these, these teachings about the coming of the Lord, when we begin to let go of them, we must take care. We, mu we, we need to wake up because we're in danger of losing our stability. Part of abiding is in, in Jesus is hoping in his return, hoping in the future and what he is going to do. We, we prevent falling from our own uh, stability by just growing in the grace and knowledge of, of God, he says here. Grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. See, grace is not merely what brought us to the, the kingdom of God of, at the beginning, but grace also helps us grow in our sense of stability. 
We, we, we don't ever move away from grace. We never outgrow grace. We, we stay there in that grace and it gives us a sense of stability. We grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. This means, you know, it's not, we're not growing in head knowledge. Well, we should grow in head knowledge, but really we want to grow in heart knowledge. The written word leads us to relationship with the living word. We grow in our personal relationship with Jesus. Paul says, to him be the glory. To him be the glory. You know, when we are, are this ready, like Peter is talking about, and when we're stable in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, it brings God glory. You know, God is glorified in this community when God's people just hold to the hope of his coming. When they're growing in grace and all, man, we don't always see it, but God is glorified. He is glorified. And so we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Worship team, come on up here. Stand with me and let's, uh, let's pray as they're coming. We'll close with one song.